Hello, everyone out there in Brattleboro. This is the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. And I am your host, Olga Peters, and I want to introduce my regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hi, Olga. I'm so excited that the power came back on just in time for us to go on the air today. I know, and the internet came on at the same time, too. Mm -hmm. Woohoo! I also want to introduce our guest to the show today. It is Representative Laura Sebelia, and she is out of Dover. Hi, Laura. Hello. So happy to be here. (laughs) Great studio. It is a great studio, isn't it? And just for folks who may or may not also know Laura, she is on the school board over, is it the West River Valley now? Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, did I get that right? I almost said Dover. It's the River Valley's school board. Yes. River Valley school board right in there. (laughs) And uh, Laura also works at the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation too. So you may have seen her at those events. Emily, let's bring listeners up to speed. Why are we having conversations right now about money? So we have spent the off session taking a step back and trying to understand some of the frame, some of the assumptions and some of the sort of patterns of thought that shape the way we talk about legislation and shape the way constituents and community members participate in the process of crafting legislation. And so we spent that incredible month talking about participation and community meetings and town meeting and how that all works together. We spent a month talking about legislating morality, how that works, how it doesn't when we've done it before. And now we are going to spend the month talking about money. And today, because money sort of controls everything, Mm -hmm. and one, I think that a lot of the time we have legislation that everyone might agree on, but no one can find the money for, and so nothing happens. And I think a lot of our public participation also gets wrapped up in how people are voting or not voting for budgets. And so we really wanted to take a step back and understand how school budgets work today and how school funding works throughout the state. Because I, for one, want to understand it better. And so that's one reason we're really glad you're here today, Laura. (laughs) Yes. Been thinking about this for decades. Decades. Yes. So, and we always must remind people that the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and the guests, not the radio station. Just so you call us with complaints and... And, and not the board. <laughs> or praise. Or praise. That's right. Let's go with praise. Yes. So just for anyone out there who doesn't know much about Ver- how Vermont funds its school system, I just want to start with a very one million mile view overview of Act 60, which is the education funding bill. Basically, that set up the structure for how money flows from the towns to the state and then back to the schools. So... Before 1997, when Act 60 came about, basically, like most places in the, st- in the country, Vermont uh, towns paid for their own schools. And because of that, if it was a wealthy town, they had a wealthy school. If it was a poor town, they had a poor, t- poor school. The Brigham decision changed that and, and said that all students in Vermont, regardless of where they live, need to have equal opportunities in education. That brought about Act 60, which basically changed funding from town by town to creating a state pool 
of funds that then would go back to uh, towns, I mean, sorry, schools equally in, in equal measure. Uh, kind of similar to how the transportation fund works. That has been several years. Act 60 still has its, its supporters and its opponents. Some people love it, some people don't. I feel while the intention was really, really good, um, and I think it has helped a lot of students uh, over, over the years, there is still, it has created such a confusing funding mechanism that local taxpayers often throw up their hands in frustration and say, I don't know how this school budget works. I don't know how we pay for funding. I don't, I just don't know. And as a result, they have disengaged from the process uh, to a large extent. And I'm wondering, Emily and Laura, is that anything you have seen in, in uh, your experience? Absolutely. I there's sort of technical terms that get thrown around about sort of equalized student counts and percentages of people. And, you know, one student counts as 1.7 people or 0.2 people. And that causes its own confusion. I think unnecessarily, actually, I think they're fairly, you know, they're not that complex a concept, but (laughs) (laughs) I think if we can't explain these things to people in a common sense way, in Mm -hmm. some way we have really no sense yeah. doing it. Right. Um, and then I think the other confusion is people who are still really holding on to this idea that the budget that they choose at town meeting and the budget that they vote on and the tax rate they vote on is, I think a lot of people still think it is entirely local and local right. decision making. Right. When we really in many ways haven't had that mm-hmm. true sense since since the, the 90s. So Laura, in your experience, how does money flow from the tax base to the state education fund and then back to the schools. Yeah, I want to answer the last question first, if that's okay. Sure, go Is that for okay? It. So, you know, I would say I also have seen that. I think, by and large, most people, um, the majority of folks in communities, value education. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen recent polling that's come out that has actually said that um, we value education um, more more than the tax rate. You know, well, I think that 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 line is pretty close. Um, (laughs) You know, we know that that's true. And yet there have been such big demographic changes, such big changes in tax rates um, because of shifts in policy that people are, you know, paying very close attention, feeling, um, you know, really like, wow, this is a lot for us to be investing. I'd like to at least understand what I'm doing here with this Mm -hmm. thing that I value very much. So that's, you know, I I think there's a lot of room for more clarity. And there's a report due to the the legislature this month Mm -hmm. about the funding mechanism, is there not? There is. It's actually on student waiting, Uh which is something that you and I have talked about over the years a lot. (laughs) Yes, we've had threatened lawsuits to get that report. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, you know, tried to get it in many years in terms of legislation, and it is finally supposed to be coming this this month. So I'm very anxious to see that. Mm-hmm. Is student waiting like the half a person and the one point yes. eight yes. of a people, or or sometimes yes. you also hear it called equalized pupils spending mm-hmm. per equal equalized yep. pupil? Yeah. Yes, uh, that is actually student weights are actually critical in terms of equity. Um, for all students in the system that we have right now. Mm-hmm. So right now, I mean, at a very high level, I thought, you know, I thought you did a pretty good job of that, Olga. Well, thank You're you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, you know, we have, we have 
uh, our Constitution. We even has uh, calls for us to provide substantially equitable education opportunities for every Vermont student. And the way that the legislature um, elected to do that was through a statewide property tax. Okay, so that everyone on you know our grand list, our residential grand list, or our non-residential grand list, everyone in Vermont is going to pay to educate all of the students in Vermont. So we have that shared responsibility and shared value. Mm -hmm. Okay, so all of the money, um, you know, I will say that it goes in, it's not technically, it doesn't all go in, but let's just say, you know, we've accumulated, accounted for these dollars, right, for education. We then have local decision making Hmm. okay we've got this shared responsibility this statewide pool of funds and then we have local decision making so how that kind of ends up working is if you are in a town that has a very low grand list or let's let's what's a grand list ah Thank you. Yes. Grand list. That is the value of all of the properties in your town. Both commercial and residential. That's that question right. was for our listeners. I just oh, want to clarify. Course. That's <laughs> right. And, you know, with education funding, it's an important question, right? So we have residential grand list, and then we have non-residential. The non-residential includes, um, it includes all of our businesses, and it also includes all of our weekend residents or our second homeowners. And all of our rentals. Yes. I find that shocking that those three are in the same tax category. Yes. I did not nice. know that. I not get over that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. an interesting spin. Yes. So your, right, your landlord mm-hmm. is responsible. Right. Exactly. So <clears throat> we, have, we have these uh, local decisions being made. Um, and the effect is in a town that has a really high property tax value. So I'm going to look, I'm going to use the examples that were used for Act 60. So the town that I live in has a large ski area mm-hmm. and three quarters of the buildings that are there are second homes. And so uh, there is a very high grand list in that town for the, no- and particularly for the number of students that Meaning are Meaning that all the properties in that town are worth yes. a lot if you, smush yes. if you count them all up together. Yes, okay. considered to be a very wealthy town. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, and that's Dover, right? So in Dover, if you wanted to educate the kids, it was pretty cheap. Right? right, so because you're applying that tax rate across every, you know, all the second homes, the ski area, everybody. So, you know, here's another town that I represent, uh, say uh, Wardsboro. Mm-hmm. Wardsboro does right next door does not have a big ski area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do have second homes, not nearly as many, um, so not nearly as wealthy. And so, to provide the same education in Dover and Wardsboro, you you would have seen a a, a difference pretty significant difference in the tax rate and that was before x60 that was before x60 and so if just very practically i want to make sure i'm understanding this that means that a person in wordsboro whose house is worth one hundred fifty thousand dollars would pay a lot more in taxes than a person in dover whose house is worth one hundred fifty thousand dollars to get the same school education education okay thank you yes that's exactly right. Um, and so with Act 60, uh, we said, okay, we're going we're gonna to make sure that 
all of the money goes in. So Dover actually, so now we've got a flat rate. So, um, <clears throat> so we'll look at what it, what is the amount of spending that is needed to educate all of the students based on the local decisions that we anticipate. Well, there's a local decision. Deci- yeah, I was just going to say, give What's an a local decision. <laughs> local decisions are the budgets. Okay, so. It, it, it's <laughs> it's tricky because there's yes. a lot of thing in a school yes. budget that's not locally yes. controlled and that's then right. there is what that's is right. yeah so what so, kinds of things are locally controlled in a school budget what kinds of things are not locally controlled in a school budget so any uh, any legislation that we pass Emily is not locally controlled <laughs> you know like we make <laughs> them do a lot of stuff that's so unfunded. much stuff so yes. many unfunded <laughs> mandates yes. 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 I think and we should be world famous for yeah, it. yeah federally as well mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know it, at the locals make decisions about how many classes to have, you know, for the fifth grade. Mm-hmm. You know, are we going to have three or two for our, you know, 60 fifth graders? Mm-hmm. You know, um, the locals make decisions on um, how they're going to follow special education laws, like with, with staffing. Um, the locals make decisions on. Um, what kind of extracurricular activities will be included in the budget? The locals make decisions. And after-school activities. And after-school right? activities, okay. sure. There's also facility upkeep as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Like what, kind of, what kind of improvements will we make to the facility? What about curriculum stuff? Yeah, by, I mean, we certainly have some um, state-mandated uh, testing, some federally-mandated testing that drives at different um, different. Uh, we have standards, right, that we have to um, ensure kids are, are meeting. But, but like some STEM curriculums could yeah. be really expensive. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in, in actually in River Valleys, the school district that I'm, that I'm in, we, we now have the Dover School and the Wardsboro School. And they each actually have their own specialized little uh, curriculum that they do. The Dover School does the International Baccalaureate. And the Wardsboro School has started a STEM program. Uh, in their school. So you can make those kind of local decisions. Um, so at transportation, you can make local decisions there. You can make decisions about um, whether or not you want to feed all of the kids, you know, or just the kids that qualify. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so big differences on that throughout the state. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, so the decisions that the locals are going to make are anticipated, right? How much money is going to be needed based on what we think the value of the grand list is. And the tax commissioner puts out um, on December 1, antici- before, we, before we pass budgets, or the legislature comes in, you know, she's statutorily required, he is statutorily required to put out an anticipated tax rate, based on, you know, what they're, what they're looking at. A lot of factors there would be um, the number of students, which we haven't gotten into at all in terms of how that factors into this Is whole that big the, issue. at the state level, the anticipated taxes or the mm-hmm. local level? That is, on that December is what 1st. the, what the, um, oh gosh, now we're starting to talk about yields. Oh, this oh is where boy. I start getting, yeah. So I guess yields. the anticipated spending for the next year is that basically the last year spending with some growth yeah okay basically and looking at and looking at what the population is doing yeah so growth and shrinkage based on population and or inflation okay as the case may be yes lots of shiftage here yes is that even a word word. it is now let's not let's not make new words here or at least funner words if we're gonna make there we go 
So, so we have this budget that yes. was sort of locally decided. Yes. We have a tax rate that was state anticipated. What happens now? So we have all of the budgets that are locally decided that, you know, the tax department set, you know, puts on their magic thinking hat and tries to figure out what that's going to be, anticipates, you know, how much money is going to be needed and puts out this, you know, letter saying, here's what we think is going to happen. And that's the tax department, not the agency of education. Yes. Yes. And that's in December. And then in January, the legislature convenes and inevitably every year we do try and fix things. Um, and <laughs> while, and I mean, sincerely, yeah, yeah, yeah very, much so, very much um, so. And, you know, there are varying problems across the state, um, you know, within our education system that folks need assistance with. So we will be fixing things while school boards are putting together their budgets, working with their supervisory unions. Um, and it just becomes this super, you know, then we go to town meeting and the, the legislature's still in and the tax commissioner has anticipated and the so press is saying. our town meeting in March is yes. when we vote on our school budget. Yes. Right, but the schools the don't, le- don't have all the information until sometimes the summer. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. My longtime school board chair has often threatened to try and move town meeting until after the legislature is uh, convened. So there's a little challenge there with timing. So that's very, very high, high level. Mm-hmm. Um, the tax rates, the, do you want to get into tax rates and like the much. factors, I factors do. for yeah, tax rates? That, yeah. Okay. So all of this system has been put in place. Um, all of the system has been put in place to provide substantially educational substantially similar educational opportunities for all students. Mm -hmm. So equity has been defined as equal um, spending per pupil. So all of our measures um, to look at whether or not we are providing equity have been around a dollar figure of spending per pupil. And so every school we look at what they are spending Per pupil. Now, Emily represents Brattleboro. I do indeed. It is the largest town in Wyndham County. Mm-hmm. It has the largest schools, probably. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I actually that. don't know if that's true. Probably, maybe. Probably, yeah. Um, so, and then I represent um, Dover, and uh, I actually represent all small towns. Uh, I live in Dover. And we have very small schools. I represent Reedsboro. Reedsboro's got a tiny school. Um, Reedsboro's trying to figure out this whole education funding. So I may have five fifth graders this year. And Emily may have 50 fifth graders this year. Mm -hmm. And she may have, you know, two classrooms or three classrooms. um, And our policies. It's probably more around like six classrooms, I think. At the three elementary schools. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, and we look at um, what we've set up a system that says that if you're in your six classrooms, if you have, um, let's just say, let's just say it's 10 students, okay, in each Mm -hmm. one of your fifth grade, and it's probably significantly more than that, but for the math, okay, let's say you have 10 students in each one of your fifth grade classes, and I have five in my Reedsboro class. Those are both really small classes. Um, We've said that it should cost the same to educate those students, or let's say you have 20. And I have, you know, five 
it, it should not. It actually should cost more per student in a small school. Because mm-hmm. you don't have economies of scale. Right. And That's right. But the flip side of that is that in some communities, such as communities like Brattleboro, yeah. and maybe even communities like Wardsboro or Weddingham, you have a substantially higher population, population of folks who are struggling. Right, mm-hmm. poverty. And so Absolutely. we know that with higher poverty rates, often their kids come into the school with higher level needs mm-hmm. and perhaps a need for higher level interventions. Or those interventions aren't being paid for privately with parent dollars like they might be in wealthier communities where people would pay for tutors outside of school. Right. So that then makes things more expensive in those communities. Absolutely. And so if we go back to, um, if we go back to this waiting study that is coming out mm-hmm. in November, so um, if you know if the if we look at the per pupil spending, right, and then we look at. Um, uh, how students are weighted right now. A, um, a preschool student is weighted as less than half, I believe. A high school student is weighted as more than one. So basically the legislature has determined, um, maybe with some input from the agency of education, you know, that it should cost a little more to educate a high school student and it should cost a little less to educate a pre-K student, right? So you start counting all of your students, weighting them, and then we get that final count so we can figure out how much you're spending per pupil, okay? If you have kids that have uh, English as a second language, they also count more. Special education also mm-hmm. counts more. Is it 504s or count that count more or just IEPs? Mm, you know, I am not 100% clear okay. on that. So what doesn't, uh, what doesn't count as more is exactly what you said, high poverty. Mm-hmm. And the issue that I've been chasing for years, which is rural. Mm-hmm. The economies of scale problem. Abs- well, well, yes, but I think, I think we have to be careful not to oversimplify that. You know, I mean, if we have two schools that are next to each other with significant capacity, and by next to each other, you know, that could be five miles, 10 miles, you mm-hmm. know, um, on flat roads that have significant capacity, I, I, I look at that and say, okay, you know, there seems like there's an opportunity for economies of scale. But, you know, as you've probably heard me say on the floor in the house, we're not rolling up rural Vermont and putting yeah. it away. So there are some small People are going to live there. Yeah, people are going to live there. Mm-hmm. Like, so there are some small schools that are going to need to continue to exist. And so we have to figure out how to account for what should be you know, a more expensive um, education, particularly in the elementary grades. The other thing I think that's interesting about rural education being more expensive is that here in Brattleboro, as a hub town, students here, not all students, because I actually meet a remarkable number of students who live here and grow up here and never come downtown to get the resources of downtown. But students who are sort of regularly integrate into the downtown environment have a lot more opportunities available to them outside of the school day for enrichment Mm -hmm. that wouldn't necessarily need to be available in the school building for that youth to have an equitable educational experience. So that's another part, I think, of that sort of rural urban divide around opportunities and what the school needs to provide in order for all youth to exit school with the same capacity absolutely this tiles into uh, 
different conversations that we have with different hats on, Emily. You know, we look Indeed. at, right? <laughs> We're um, going to keep those hats off for today, I okay. think, though, oh, just okay. to save Olga. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, we're not going to identify those hats. But in our other Can roles, I tell you a funny joke? So Olga and I were talking about <laughs> this interview, and I was saying, like, I don't know if I really know enough about education to, like, debate things with Laura. And she's like, it's not a debate. And I was like, everything Laura and I do is a debate. Like, <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. We're just people who debate everything all the time. And Olga's like, okay, I'll bring the popcorn then. <laughs> it's good. It's stimulating. It is. So uh, we are working really hard in this region, um, both Emily and her work and me and my work, to ensure that um, youth in this area understand about the opportunities that are available to them, particularly with um, employers that are here. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, when you talk about the the divide there with rural students or mm-hmm. with Hubtown, you know, b- larger population uh, students, um, I actually was at one of our smaller elementary schools uh, a couple of months ago uh, for a meeting, um, a joint district meeting. They were trying to work something out really hard through, you know, an Act 46 issue. And the Secretary of Education was there. And uh, he said to them, to the to the chair, uh, you know, tell me about what you tell the kids there are for opportunities. Tell tell me about what these kids see for their future. And uh, the the school board chair said that there's no opportunities for them here. They have to leave. And, you know, of course, I jumped right out of my seat because we know that there are so many opportunities mm-hmm. here. We But our kids in the rural areas don't, if they don't know about them, they can't they can't take advantage mm-hmm. of. So I have a really bougie example of that. Um, my growing up, I grew up in the suburbs of New York. And so I went to museums with my family all the time. So growing up, my experience of art was as good as it gets. I saw real art made by world masters throughout history. That's how I learned what art was. I don't think I, and then in college, I didn't even take an art history class. And when I meet people who grew up in a more rural area and their experience of art history, even if they were someone that loved art deeply, looking at a masterpiece in a textbook is a fairly meaningless experience. Um, And I remember once when I was at Dartmouth visiting, and I've always been sort of like an Ivy League BS, whatever, Ivy Leagues. And then I was at Dartmouth visiting and I went into the gallery and this is quite a show. <laughs> Aren't you is. glad you came by? I am, I am. I went into the gallery and I realized that the art on the wall is, again, this like world-class art. And the art students who are undergrads, who are just taking an art history class, get to curate a show with this art. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right? Yes. <laughs> and yes. then I was like, oh, now I maybe understand what Ivy yes. Leagues are about. <laughs> but... I think that gets to sort of these larger issues around how students are enriched or learn about this wider world around them and then like are able to find meaning making, whether it's jobs or just like the richness of humanity mm-hmm. and how many more resources need to go into doing that in a rural community to make it meaningful well, right. because there isn't all of the extra people on the periphery sort of adding that. Yeah. And the thing that you have in rural Vermont is the thing that you have in the rest of Vermont, which is Vermonters. And Vermonters have shown over and over and over and over again, they prize education. So and how important it is them for yeah. their kids to yeah. really, and not just their kids, but their neighbors. Yes. That like really, I think Vermonters have this sense that like they're all, all of our kids. And I 
that's so valuable. So how are we going to really make sure that we live that value? Right. So we're going to head to break, but I just want to leave listeners with one, one thought, because I think what Laura and Emily are talking about is so important and it, it's sort of at times these intentions I, I, I see with Act 60, this really great intention and this wrestling with how do we educate all our kids fairly? Um, and then the numbers and the mechanics of Act 60 don't always match up. And as an example, I don't know if this is still true in Whitingham, but there was a time in Whitingham where the grand list was va- valued very high. And yet more than like, it was like 75% of the population was on income sensitivity which it would say, it would kind of tell you, I would think that if so many people are struggling economically, then maybe the town isn't as wealthy as you say it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's what I mean by sometimes the mechanics of Act we 60. We haven't even talked about income sensitivity. I know, right? There's okay. that too. Yes, Act 60 yes. includes income sensitivity. So important. Um, and, and so again, these great intentions around education and yet how do we make the mechanics work? Here are, are some messages from our sponsors and we shall return underwriters underwriter well we can say sponsors that's the same thing too um (laughs) we shall return in a moment 